Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of and may barely recognize. This podcast contains bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, all presented in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Francis Scott Key and the Star-Spangled Banner. Now let's get started on our story about Francis Scott Key. Americans routinely sing the Star-Spangled Banner at sporting events, public celebrations, and official occasions. Perhaps a few could identify the author of the song, Francis Scott Key, but it is a rare American who could explain exactly what Key was referring to in the lyrics of the national anthem or even its historical context. Key was a prominent lawyer from Frederick, Maryland, who, through a sequence of incidents that occurred during the War of 1812, observed one of the most critical episodes in American history. On the morning of September 14, 1814, Francis Scott Key was in the custody of the British Navy, watching from the deck of a ship as the British attempted to destroy Fort McHenry and the city of Baltimore. As the fate of Baltimore and even the United States hung in the balance, Key waited in the darkness and wondered anxiously if the city would survive. Ultimately, the lyrics of the Star-Spangled Banner were his expression of anxiety about what daylight would bring. But the events that Key describes took two years to unfold, and the British invasion had already involved serious consequences for the new nation. It is impossible to understand Key's emotions and even the existence of the Star-Spangled Banner itself without understanding what led to this dramatic moment. On August 16, 1814, residents of the state of Virginia were alarmed by the sight of British warships sailing off of the Atlantic Ocean and into Chesapeake Bay. The United States had been at war with Great Britain since 1812, but other than a stalemate on the Canadian border and a few naval battles on the Great Lakes, the War of 1812 had been relatively uneventful. From its inception, the war had been controversial, with New England dominated by the pro-British Federalist Party, politically opposed to armed conflict with the British. But years of rancor over British trade policies and the practice of impressment in which British warships seized American merchant ships on the high seas and forced crews into the British Navy outraged many influential Americans. Interest in Midwest and Canadian expansion and additional anger over British attempts to foment Native American hostility in western regions of the U.S. precipitated a congressional vote in June of 1812 to formally declare war on Britain. Although the vote was close, especially in the Senate, a faction led by Henry Clay and John Calhoun, known as the War Hawks, prevailed, and for the first time in its young history, America, under President James Madison, declared war on another country. Luckily, Great Britain was preoccupied with the ongoing Napoleonic conflicts that tied down its massive military might in Europe. Unfortunately, the U.S. military effort was utterly disorganized. Repeated attempts to invade Canada were a fiasco, and New England, completely unsupportive of the war effort, openly traded with Canada, and the British military, looking to resupply its European armies with food, allowed this practice. 
the rest of the eastern seaboard was under a British blockade that caused severe economic damage. By 1814, the United States was a divided and war-weary nation with an inability to recruit a motivated and organized fighting force. In April of 1814, Napoleon Bonaparte agreed to abdicate and was exiled to the Mediterranean island of Elba. Great Britain could now turn its full attention to North America. The American declaration of war was cause enough to prompt a decisive British response. One of the reasons that Great Britain had so meekly surrendered to conclude the American Revolutionary War was because the government presumed that it was only a matter of time before another conflict started between the two countries that would give the British the opportunity to exact retribution and punished what it considered to be an upstart group of savages. Now that opportunity was at hand. Word quickly reached the capital and President Madison that British warships were in the vicinity of Washington, D.C. After a year commanding ships along the American coast, British Rear Admiral George Coburn had convinced the naval hierarchy that the mid-Atlantic cities of the U.S. were weakly defended and could be easily captured. Despite its relatively small size and military insignificance, it was felt that the capture of the nation's capital would have considerable political and emotional impact. The British also wanted to avenge repeated incidents in Canada in which Canadian towns were looted and burned by American invaders. The American government and its various defensive entities spread throughout the region could only speculate on British intentions. The flotilla sailed northward on the Chesapeake and then entered Maryland's Patuxent River. The officer in charge of the invasion, Sir Alexander Cochrane, ordered Coburn to transport troops commanded by Major General Robert Ross and land at Benedict, Maryland. On August 19, 1814, at dawn, more than 4,000 soldiers and Marines began the process of landing on American soil. Ross and Coburn's objective, to seize Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. There was no resistance, and the only local inhabitants fled. In Washington, it became clear that the town would soon be under attack. The regular army and state militia in the region's military district were commanded by Brigadier General William Winder, who determined that the most likely route of the British advance would have to pass through the strategic road junction at Bladensburg, Maryland. He hastily attempted to concentrate as many troops in this location as possible. Although in theory he had 15,000 men at his disposal, this fighting force consisted mostly of disorganized and poorly trained militia who would be opposed by veteran British infantry and Marines. Various units from all over the mid-Atlantic struggled to get to Bladensburg ahead of the invaders. Panic also gripped Washington, D.C. as residents, including First Lady Dolly Madison, began packing and preparing to flee in the event that the defense was unsuccessful. General Ross's troops arrived in the vicinity of Bladensburg on Wednesday, August 24th. The town was only six miles from Washington, and it was here that Winder would attempt to stop the British advance on the capital. American troops, approximately 7,000 men, had taken up positions west of the town and across the crucial bridge that would allow British passage over what is now known as the Anacostia River. Even worse, the American defense was thrown together haphazardly with little support for the frontline Maryland militia that would attempt to meet the British head-on. The next line of defense was situated on a hill more than 500 yards away. But time had run out for any more preparation. At noon, the glint of bayonets and the appearance of red-colored infantry marching toward the town of Bladensburg signaled the advance of Ross's troops. 
President Madison had made his way to the vicinity to try and confer with Winder and Secretary of State James Monroe, who were making contradictory suggestions regarding troop positions. In fact, Madison had to be warned by an advance scout to stay out of Bladensburg when the scout relayed the surprising news that the British were already in the town. Madison and Abraham Lincoln remain the only U.S. presidents to ever appear on an American battlefield. Ross had already taken up position in the second story of one of the brick houses of the town and was observing the American lines through a spyglass. Although his opponent occupied several strong defensive positions amidst high ground, Ross also noted that the American lines were not in support of each other and that soldiers were still arriving in the rear of the battlefield. Despite the fact that some of his force had still not even arrived, Ross sensed that his opposition was weak and disorganized, and he gave the order for an immediate attack. Two columns of British troops began marching through the town of Bladensburg itself, and when they reached the wooden bridge over the river, Winder opened up with artillery. The British paused and took cover on the eastern side of the river. Soon they began another attempt to cross, and this time were more successful. They quickly overwhelmed the American front line, which abandoned its position and retreated. Winder ordered a counterattack from the second line of defense, which momentarily halted the British advance. But more British troops were advancing across the bridge, and from the center of the town, Ross ordered his own artillery to employ Congreve rocket attacks on the American positions. Portable launchers akin to a small mortar allowed the firing of these missiles, long metal tubes filled with lead shot that noisily rose in the air like a skyrocket and then exploded, raining down a deadly shower of metal and shrapnel. Wildly inaccurate, the rockets still were an impressive weapon that had a terrifying effect on an opponent, especially an inexperienced group like the American militia. Men began to drop their weapons and flee in panic. Winder tried to stop the British advance with a hastily formed third line, and when it immediately appeared that this line would be overrun, he ordered a general retreat. He was intent on reforming a last defense in Washington itself, but most of his men ran in any available direction without any other objective other than personal safety. In one of the worst defeats in U.S. military history, panicked American troops were overwhelmed in less than three hours at a time when the stakes couldn't have been higher. President Madison had observed the action from a number of successive hilltops and immediately sent word ahead to his wife to abandon the capital. This message arrived by courier at 3 p.m. Some of the president's personal servants began loading up a wagon with anything of value from the president's mansion. These slaves quickly tossed china, books, silver, clocks, and even the velvet drapes from the home's drawing room into the wagon that was dispatched to Maryland. As news of the impending British arrival spread, friends and associates urged the First Lady to flee as quickly as possible. She was just about to do so when she passed by the portrait of George Washington hanging in the dining room. The Gilbert Stuart portrait was already a revered relic of the new nation, and Dolly Madison did not want it to fall into British hands. She ordered it removed, but the elegantly framed picture was securely bolted to the wall. Any attempts to remove the painting failed until Dolly told the group to break the gilded frame surrounding the picture. With retreating American troops already visible in the road outside and her own escape route about to be too jammed, Dolly's sister begged her to leave. The portrait, still extended on its roller, was eight feet high and five feet wide, too large to accompany Dolly in her carriage. She finally agreed to leave, but not before telling those present to try and save the painting, but under no circumstances to allow it to be captured. 
She asked Jacob Barker, a banker and friend of the Madisons, to take personal control of the painting, which he did. President Madison arrived about an hour later and quickly left, intent on escaping into Virginia. Barker and the remaining men quickly loaded additional valuables, including the Stuart portrait, into a cart and joined a column of soldiers retreating to the relative safety of Georgetown. The British Army regrouped briefly, but within hours began marching briskly towards Washington. 1,200 men halted two miles from the capital. Ross continued into the city itself with 200 elite infantrymen. There was zero resistance. Any remaining civilians remained inside their homes. The only remaining American activity in the city was the deliberate destruction of the Washington Navy Yard, flames visible on the already dark horizon. Several ships, naval equipment, ordnance, and other shipbuilding materials were destroyed to keep them out of the hands of the British. Ross and Coburn had already decided to burn any public buildings in the city, and as the Navy Yard glowed a few miles away, Ross's units took position around the U.S. Capitol building. The Capitol building itself looked nothing like today's domed edifice. Instead, it was two square sandstone blocks connected by a wooden passageway. Under construction since 1793, it was a costly and time-consuming process. The British entered the building, ascertained that no one was present, and began smearing gunpowder paste on the walls of the south wing. Once this was lit, paper and wooden furniture was added, and within minutes an intense heat drove the arsonists to the north wing, where a magnificent library was quickly put to the torch. The entire building was soon engulfed in flames. Next, Ross Coburn and a column of men set out to what is known today as the White House, but was known then as the President's Mansion. They entered the now deserted home and devoured the food and wine that was supposed to have been served to the President and his guests at that afternoon's supper. After selecting a few souvenirs, but nothing of any value as to avoid being charged with looting, soldiers quickly began to pile up furniture and soak mattresses with lamp oil. After some flame was acquired from a nearby tavern, an officer walked through the rooms of the mansion, igniting the makeshift kindling in each room. Madison's former home was quickly ablaze, Ross Coburn and troops admiring their work from a short distance. Next, the Treasury received the same treatment, the British momentarily disappointed that the vault contained nothing of any real value. The fires illuminated the night sky, visible all the way in Benedict, where the main British fleet was anchored. Coburn and Ross were intent on more destruction, but it was already well past midnight, so they called it a day. Next morning, the War, Navy, State Departments, and Library of Congress were set aflame, and a local newspaper that had vilified Coburn in print was vandalized, printing presses smashed, and any C-type destroyed, preventing any future criticism. By early afternoon, British troops, attempting to destroy 150 barrels of gunpowder, managed to ignite a large quantity, precipitating a massive and deadly explosion. This was accompanied by a freakish thunderstorm that featured gale-force winds. Confronted by the storm and the sight of some of the horribly wounded casualties from the armory, Ross and Coburn decided to retreat. 
At dusk, they ordered the march to begin back through Bladensburg. Some of the exhausted men fell behind, resting, and hoping to catch up in a few hours' time. These stragglers began to take liberties with the property and possessions of some of the local citizens, despite Ross's assurances that no one would be harmed as long as British troops were allowed to pass without violence. In Upper Marlboro, Maryland, a prominent doctor, William Beans, was happy when Ross and the main British contingent left. Beans had actually hosted Ross when the British commander was making his way to Washington. To celebrate the enemy's departure, the doctor had invited over some guests for a meal. When the guests relayed reports of the thefts and harassment of the locals, Beans led his party in an attempt to capture any malefactors. They quickly rounded up three soldiers at gunpoint and had them secured in a barn nine miles away. Beans and two of his guests then went to bed at his home. Unfortunately, at least one of the captives quickly escaped and made his way to the British camp. When General Ross heard of the situation, he became enraged, especially when he learned that it was Dr. Beans, his former host, who was the ringleader of this effort. Ross had given Dr. Beans, one of the town's most prominent men, his word that no citizen would be harmed as long as British troops were not ambushed or detained. Ross ordered that Beans be apprehended immediately, and the doctor was dragged back to British lines in his nightclothes. Eighty-five men on horseback conveyed Beans and his two guests to General Ross personally. He ordered them to be removed to the British fleet. The British attack now turned its attention to its next military objective, Baltimore. Baltimore was especially notorious in the eyes of the invaders. The third largest American city, it had sent out more privateers, the sleek, fast ships that captured and seized British merchant ships, than any other American port. By the summer of 1814, the British were losing over 50 ships a month, the majority of these in British waters. Ross, Coburn, and Cochrane were determined to destroy Baltimore in the same manner that they had laid waste to Washington. The fleet slowly made its way out of the Patuxent and towards Chesapeake Bay and the direction of Baltimore. In Ross's flagship, the HMS Tonnant, Dr. William Beans languished a prisoner. Ross had relented on the two other British captives, letting them go, but in the matter of Dr. Beans, he was adamant. Beans would be held captive with the fleet and ultimately transported to Britain, where he would be tried for treason. Back in Upper Marlboro, his friends and relatives became frantic when they heard of this alarming development. One of these friends, Richard West, was the brother-in-law of Polly Key, whose husband, Francis Scott Key, was a prominent attorney with strong connections to the Madison administration. West met with Key, who immediately promised to help negotiate Dr. Bean's release. The attorney met that very night with James Madison, who officially approved the mission and recommended that Key contact the British through the American prisoner of war agent, John S. Skinner. In the relatively polite era of early 19th century warfare, officers would typically not be held as prisoners, but exchanged formally. Because of this practice, Skinner had had numerous dealings with the British. Key and Skinner set off on a small sloop in search of the British fleet upon the Chesapeake. Bearing a white truce flag, the small ship quickly located the British and were informed of Dr. Beans's location on the Tonnant. The flagship graciously sent a longboat to fetch Key and Skinner, perhaps unaware of the reason for the requested meeting. Coming aboard the British warship on the afternoon of Wednesday, September 7th, Admiral Coburn was the first to greet the Americans. Upon hearing about Key's mission, 
Coburn was quite negative, speaking of Beans in such a hostile manner that Key presumed that any attempt to negotiate his release would be futile. Fortunately, the Americans were invited to attend the mid-afternoon meal at which all of the British commanding officers would be in attendance. After several glasses of wine, which was amply poured during the lunch, the British became quite vocal, but Key and Skinner chose not to raise the matter of Dr. Beans. One man remained decidedly quiet during the meal. Dressed plainly, Skinner was shocked to find out that this was General Ross. Coburn may have had an opinion regarding William Beans's fate, but it would be Ross who ultimately had the authority over what was his prisoner. Ross asked Skinner to meet with him privately in the Admiral's cabin. Initially, Ross expressed that he felt that Beans had not been punished enough for his transgressions, but Key had brought along letters from British wounded in both Bladensburg and Washington, with men extolling the treatment that they had received and the kindness of the Americans providing for their care. These letters had been sent ahead to the fleet before Key's arrival, and Ross had read them. While he rejected any of the legal arguments that Key also presented in a subsequent conversation, based on the American treatment of the wounded, Ross agreed that Beans should go free. Unfortunately, although Beans was released into the custody of Skinner without any further negotiation, Admiral Cochrane informed all three men that they were not free to leave until after the British invasion of Baltimore. Because of the cramped quarters on the Tonnant, they would also be transferred to another ship, Key, Skinner, Dr. Beans, and the 10-man crew of Skinner's true ship would be taken aboard the HMS Surprise, with the true ship towed behind. In Baltimore, apprehension bordering on panic gripped the city. While 15,000 troops, militia, and sailors tried to organize a defense, the population collectively shuddered at the thought of what the British might do if they successfully captured the town. Baltimore was situated at the western end of the Patapsco River, a natural harbor that eventually accessed the Chesapeake and the Atlantic. The city was protected by the guns of Fort McHenry, situated several miles to the east, where a point jutted into a strategic area overlooking the inner harbor and the widening Patapsco River. Any British naval attack would have to successfully breach the area directly controlled by the artillery of the fort. General Winder had come to Baltimore, assuming that he would control the military effort to defend the city. He was told in no uncertain terms by the commander of the Maryland militia, General Samuel Smith, that he, Smith, would supervise the defense of the city. Based on the pathetic effort at Bladensburg, Winder was hardly in a position to argue. Smith believed that any attack on the city that came by land would be launched via the Patapsco Neck, a 10-mile peninsula that led from the Chesapeake Bay directly to Baltimore from the north. Smith decided to construct trenches and earthworks on the Hampstead Hill, the heights just north of the city. Here he deployed most of the 10,000 men of the Maryland militia. He sent an additional 3,000 men to march toward the expected invasion point, and these men took up position about seven miles east of Baltimore. In fact, Ross and Coburn had decided on a coordinated air and sea attack. Ross would land his troops at North Point, Maryland, at the tip of the Patapsco Neck, and make the short 15-mile march to the city. After the 60-mile march on Washington, Ross reasoned that he could handle this much shorter distance with relative ease. Because the Patapsco was relatively shallow, the larger warships would not be able to enter the inner harbor area. Instead, Cochrane would take the smaller frigates and bombardment vessels upriver to attack Fort McHenry, and after extinguishing the guns of the fort, to bombard the city itself, hopefully leading to a major conflagration.
On board the Surprise, Francis Scott Key watched British preparations for the attack with increasing dread and despair. The officers around him talked of burning the city to the ground and the plunder and desolation that they would wreak upon a town they considered the center of the war effort. The British admiral did allow the Americans to reboard their own sloop, but posted sentries to make sure they remained tethered to the British fleet until the invasion was completed. At 3 a.m. on Monday, September 12th, Ross began to put ashore his men, quickly landing 4,700 troops without incident. Cochrane, on the surprise, began sailing up the Patapsco with the naval portion of the attack force. Informed quickly by scouts of the British landing at North Point, the Americans, under Samuel Smith's subordinate General John Stricker, quickly set up a battle line along the North Point Road leading to Baltimore. As the British ships moved within sight of Fort McHenry, Americans there deliberately sunk two dozen merchant ships in the path of the enemy, hoping to make their passage difficult, if not impossible. General Stricker, intent on exploiting the element of surprise and wishing to harass the British along the road to Baltimore, sent out a task force of about 300 men who positioned themselves in the trees and woods along the road. Ross, impatient to get his force moving in anticipation of the attack on Baltimore the following day, was close to his advance party of scouts, quickly distancing himself from the main British force. Unaware of any immediate American presence, Ross was surprised when the American detachment opened fire on his men. Not understanding the numbers of hostiles in the vicinity, Ross cavalierly rode further to investigate, placing himself in plain sight of the American troops. Another volley came out of the woods and trees directly in front of the British general. He was struck by a musket ball and buckshot that hit him in the right arm and continued through his chest, puncturing a lung. Ross fell from his horse and collapsed from the mortal wound, saying only, send immediately for Colonel Brooke, his second in command. More British troops made their way up the road and began returning the American fire. Several Americans were killed, including 18-year-old Henry McComas and 19-year-old Daniel Wells. The furious British response forced an American retreat back towards General Stricker. Admiral Coburn was informed of Ross's condition and rushed to the general's side. Ross ordered that he be covered with blankets so that the troops would not be discouraged by the sight of their wounded leader. Still, as the column passed, Ross was easily recognizable. Despite the efforts of a surgeon, Ross understood his eventual fate and asked to be taken back to the fleet. He gave Coburn a locket, asked that it be given to his wife, and was placed on a stretcher, the column parting to let the wounded general pass by. Eventually a cart was commandeered, but only two hours after being shot, Ross, fading quickly, was removed to the shade of a large poplar tree. There, General Robert Ross, the only military figure to capture the capital of the United States, died a few moments later. His body would be loaded onto the tonnet and sealed in a barrel of dark rum. It would potentially be months before the fleet returned to Great Britain, and this method would preserve Ross until a suitable burial could take place.
Colonel Arthur Brooke made his way to the front and pressed the attack, quickly approaching Stricker's position. He ordered a full frontal assault, as well as an attempt to flank the American lines, an attack that was stubbornly resisted but eventually forced an orderly American retreat. The American troops reorganized a few miles down the road and waited for the inevitable British advance. But the advance did not materialize. The British had suffered over 300 casualties with close to 50 men killed. With the evening approaching, an exhausted column and many wounded to care for, Brooke stopped seven miles from Baltimore. Stricker soon learned of the British halt and decided to retreat back to the American lines on Hampstead Hill. He felt that he had done enough to delay the British advance and didn't want to be overrun before the main attack on Baltimore even started. That evening, his troops safely made it back to American lines. Brooke was content to wait until next morning to coordinate his attack with the naval bombardment of Fort McHenry and the city itself. At dawn, Cochrane ordered his five bomb ships in position in the vicinity of Fort McHenry. These flat vessels contained 10- and 13-inch mortars that could hurl a 200-pound missile two and a half miles. These ships were named Terror, Volcano, Etna, Meteor, and Devastation for good reason. Volcano was armed with special shells containing various flammable ingredients designed to instigate a massive fire in a predominantly wooden urban area. The British hoped to turn this weapon on the city of Baltimore with predictable results. At 6.30 a.m., the bombardment of Fort McHenry began with the bomb ships supported by another dozen ships outfitted with more traditional artillery. Later, residents in downtown Baltimore said that their homes shook with vibrations from every broadside. Fort McHenry, under the command of Major General Armistead, responded with over 50 cannons from the fort itself, as well as shore batteries on both sides of the river. Some of this fire was accurate enough to force Cochrane to move his ships out of range, approximately two miles away. Here he was content to blast away with his mortars, the Americans unable to reach the British ships. Armistead ordered his guns to cease fire and the gun crews to take cover. British shells and rockets were landing on an average of over one per minute. By noon, hundreds of projectiles had landed on or near the fort. The incendiary rockets were essentially harmless, but an occasional mortar shell made its way into the fort and detonated with a tremendous explosion. One pierced the roof of the fort's powder magazine, but failed to detonate. Had it exploded, it would have blown up 300 barrels of gunpowder, the fort, and most of its inhabitants. Although his exact location has never been determined, it is believed that Francis Scott Key was situated approximately two miles from the British mortar ships and four miles from Fort McHenry. Through a spyglass, in daylight, the fort and its flag would be quite visible. The lack of an effective response would have also concerned Key, and some accounts claim that Coburn ordered the true ship into his direct vicinity, believing that Key would be useful to negotiate the fort's inevitable surrender. But as the bombardment continued throughout the afternoon, there was no sign of any American capitulation. Colonel Brooke and his infantry had also had a busy morning. Starting at daylight, the British column began the march towards the city of Baltimore. By 9 o'clock, it halted in the vicinity of Hampstead Hill. Brooke and Coburn advanced further to scout what appeared to be formidable fortifications protecting access into the city. From the second story of a nearby home, Brooke could see impressive earthworks, trenches organized to inflict crossfire, artillery and men, at least 15,000 troops. To even engage these deadly fortifications, the British would have to march up a muddy hill of wide open space. Throughout the day, 
Brooke attempted several attacking probes along American lines, but each attempt was countered quickly and successfully by General Smith from his vantage point on Hampstead Hill. Brooke decided to wait for dark, then he would have the option of a bayonet charge that he hoped would terrify the inexperienced militia into a panicked retreat. However, he would need Cochrane's support to pin down the American artillery along the waterfront. Coburn and Brooks sent a messenger to Cochrane, asking for his coordinated help for a 2 a.m. assault. For the moment, the British column could only wait. Frustrated by his inability to inflict any real damage to Fort McHenry, Cochrane once again ordered his bombships to within a mile of the fort. One shell landed with a direct hit that killed one man and wounded five others. Another detonated directly over the same position, killing another man and knocking the 24-pound gun off of its carriage. As the bombships moved even closer, the American batteries resumed, their guns now able to find the mark, forcing another British retreat. A steady rain and wind made the process of accurately firing shells even more difficult. The timed fuses of the projectiles frequently extinguished by the wet weather, preventing their explosion. Cochrane had expected the fort to quickly surrender or be destroyed. The stubborn American defense and his realization that the sunken ships and chains across the mouth of the entrance to the inner harbor meant that he would never be able to support the land invasion of the city. He sent that communication to Coburn and Brooke, but the difficulty of getting messages back and forth between the two units meant for a confusing situation. Cochrane knew he would have to do something to support what he thought was an imminent attack by Brooke, he planned a diversionary night feint upon the right portion of the peninsula behind Fort McHenry. Perhaps that would provide the support that would allow Brooke to break through on Hampstead Hill. As the night wore on and the rain poured down, Brooke and Coburn prepared for the assault. They felt that they had identified a weak spot in the American line and began to position units appropriately when they received Cochrane's message from earlier in the day. Although Cochrane technically was in charge of the expedition, he could not order Brooke who had command over all land operations, to call off the attack. But his sentiment was clear from his latest note to Brooke and Coburn. He informed them that he would not be able to provide artillery assistance and closed by saying, quote, it will only be throwing the men's lives away and prevent us from going upon other services. Cochrane already knew that London was sending reinforcements for a potential invasion of New Orleans. Now it was up to Brooke to decide on a winner-take-all gamble. In his own journal, Brooke wrote that if he succeeded, he would be the greatest man in England, but failure meant my military career was gone forever. Ultimately, Brooke and Coburn came to an inevitable conclusion. Brooke sent a brief note to Cochrane that, based on the colonel's untenable situation, he would order a retreat to take place in the morning. Cochrane would not receive this message in time to call off his own attack which consisted of several hundred sailors and marines loaded into 20 small barges, launches, and even a rocket boat. This flotilla would have to slip by Fort McHenry and other shore batteries and then try to land in the rear of the fort. Optimistically, scaling ladders were included, but the spontaneity of the assault, the confusion of battle, and the darkness doomed the effort from the start. Eleven boats became disoriented and returned to their ships. Nine boats made it safely by Fort McHenry and engaged the batteries in the ferry branch area of the Patapsco. Simultaneously, the bomb ships began to redouble their efforts, the glare of explosions visible around and over the fort. From the rooftops of Baltimore, the residents watched as the ground shook mightily with the force of the British bombardment. From his vantage point, Francis Scott Key could see the trajectory of every shell and rocket launched by the British. 
During daylight, he had been reassured by the sight of the American flag that remained visible throughout the day. But the darkness and rainy weather now prevented him from seeing the flag, although he actually remained reassured by the ferocious bombardment that continued throughout the night, evidence that Fort McHenry had not surrendered. The British barges in the ferry branch continued their diversion for several hours, but observing that no British assault on Hampstead Hill was forthcoming, the commander in charge ordered a retreat. The guns of the British fleet fell silent to allow this group to return to safety. Although it was already early morning Wednesday, September 14th, Francis Scott Key was not sure what the cessation of the bombardment meant. Had the British given up or had the fort finally surrendered? He and Skinner stood on the deck of the truce ship and waited for the dawn. Only then would they be able to detect which flag now flew over Fort McHenry. As the new day began, a flag became visible, but the cloudy weather and faint breeze failed to reveal its identity until a disparate ray of sunshine fell upon what was now clearly the stars and stripes. Miles away, Francis Scott Key was overcome with emotion. Later he would write, I hope I shall never cease to feel the warmest gratitude when I think of this most merciful deliverance. Admiral Cochrane officially halted the bombardment at 7 a.m. By 9 a.m., the entire squadron was retreating back down the Patapsco. At some point during the morning, when it became clear that Fort McHenry had survived, Major Armistead ordered the lowering of the storm flag that had been on display during the night and had it replaced by the garrison flag, a gigantic 30 by 42 foot banner. This flag was so large that if hoisted during the rain, it would have become waterlogged and snapped the flagpole. After a rendition of Yankee Doodle Dandy, the garrison fired a celebratory shot to bring the flag's attention to the city and the now departing British. On Hampstead Hill, it became apparent that the threatening British battle group had simply disappeared, a desultory retreat to North Point already underway. Key and Skinner excitedly watched all of the signs of British retreat and realized that Baltimore was saved. It would not be until Friday afternoon that the true ship was cut loose. Francis Scott Key would use the time spent making his way back to Baltimore to scribble some notes on the back of a letter. He habitually wrote poems and verse, and certainly this moment called for a similar effort. When the boat landed at a wharf on Fells Point, several journalists interviewed Key, Skinner, and Beans. Key then took a room at a local tavern, where he consulted his notes and composed a four-stanza poem. The first stanza of Key's work would eventually become The Star-Spangled Banner, Less well known is that in the fourth stanza, Key used the phrase, and this be our motto, in God is our trust. So in one evening, Key would not only compose what eventually became the national anthem, he also composed the official motto of the United States, in God we trust, adopted by Congress in 1956. Key wanted to check on another brother-in-law, Joseph Nicholson, who was married to a sister of Key's wife. Nicholson, a former U.S. congressman and a prominent judge, had actually participated in the defense of Fort McHenry, and two close associates had been killed during the bombardment. 
he became quite emotional after reading Key's poem and suggested that it be shared with the public. The judge wrote a brief introduction describing Key's mission, but omitting his relative's name, most likely at Key's request, and arranged to have a Baltimore newspaper immediately print out a thousand copies of the poem in handbill form. In this introduction, ironically, the judge also wrote that the poem be sung as a song to the tune of a popular British melody of the day entitled Anacreon in Heaven, adding historical confusion as to whether Key meant to compose a poem or a song. Nicholson sent hundreds of copies to the garrison at Fort McHenry. Key was able to secure at least one of them before he made his way back to his family home. There was immediate good news of another American naval victory on Lake Champlain and a victory over an invading British army at Plattsburgh, New York. Suddenly, American fortunes, which had looked bleak only days earlier, were undergoing a transformation. In Baltimore, although a newspaper had printed Key's handbill, it was not until the following week that the papers resumed publication. The Baltimore Patriot prominently printed Key's poem on page two of its new edition. Its competitor, the Baltimore American, who had actually printed the handbill, followed suit. By the end of September, the poem, entitled In Defense of Fort McHenry, had appeared in newspapers across the eastern seaboard. Initially, the work was published anonymously before Key's hometown Frederick, Maryland newspaper revealed the author as F.S. Key, Esquire, formerly of this place. Although Great Britain was electrified by the news of the destruction of Washington, defeats at Baltimore, Lake Champlain, and Plattsburgh brought the nation back to earth. Members of the military and government establishment were especially depressed by the news of General Ross's death. It would take several months, but discussions between American and British delegations in the Belgian city of Ghent would finally produce an armistice and a peace treaty. Unfortunately, word of this agreement did not reach Admiral Cochrane as he prepared to attack the city of New Orleans. This disastrous British defeat, which actually occurred after the Ghent Agreement, underlined the pointlessness of any continuation of hostilities in North America and propelled Andrew Jackson to national prominence. Thus, the War of 1812 came to an end. The only immediate benefit to the United States was a demonstration that the young nation could survive a serious national crisis. With the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the British also quickly ended the practice of impressing American merchant seamen, another serious grievance. Western expansion would continue without much British interference. Most of the major participants of the Battle of Baltimore would remain prominent historical figures who are remembered even today. Because it might have taken years for the HMS Tonnant to actually return to British soil, Robert Ross was buried in the Anglican Church in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, known at the time as St. Paul's Cemetery. His colleagues and friends constructed a 100-foot obelisk in Ross's hometown of Ross Trevor, County Down, Northern Ireland. The tower's inscription refers to the attack on Washington and still stands over 200 years later. Ross is also memorialized in St. Paul's Cathedral, London, and his portrait hangs in the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Although Ross's killer has never been historically authenticated, the local Baltimore legend that teenagers Daniel Wells and Henry McComas were responsible was memorialized when both of their remains were reinterred in 1858 in a prominent monument Admiral George Coburn luckily avoided the disaster at New Orleans. In August of 1815, he was assigned the task of conveying Napoleon Bonaparte to exile on the remote island of St. Helena. He remained governor of the island for several months before being replaced. 
Coburn would remain prominent in both the British Navy and British politics until his death in 1853 at age 81. The commander of the garrison in Fort McHenry, George Armistead, died suddenly of a heart attack in 1818 at age 38. Most historical accounts indicate that he was so stressed by the bombardment that he never physically recovered. Armistead obtained possession of the garrison flag, and it remained in his family's possession for close to a century until its donation to the Smithsonian Institution. Today, the flag is a national treasure literally symbolizing the Star-Spangled Banner. Armistead's nephew, Louis Armistead, a brigadier general in the Confederate Army, led his North Carolina brigade to the deepest penetration of Union lines on Cemetery Ridge during Pickett's charge at the Battle of Gettysburg. Armistead was shot twice in the Union counterattack that repelled Pickett's charge and subsequently died of his wounds. He is buried in Baltimore next to his uncle. James Madison was able to weather the criticism of his leadership during the invasion and left office during what was known as the Era of Good Feelings, an unprecedented period of political unity that he was able to pass on to his political heir, James Monroe. Dolly Madison also got her painting of George Washington back within six weeks when Jacob Barker retrieved it from the Maryland farmhouse where it was left in the confusion following the invasion. It was returned to a rebuilt White House in 1817 and still hangs in the East Room today. John Skinner became Baltimore's postmaster following the war and also became a successful publisher of magazines, including the first American sports magazine. Dr. Beans returned to his medical practice in Upper Marlboro and his estate. Close to key for the rest of his life, he died peacefully in 1828, age 80. Francis Scott Key would become one of the most prominent citizens of the nation's capital and government. Only weeks after the composition of his poem, he would supervise the full musical arrangement of the lyrics with the Baltimore musical publisher and arranger Thomas Carr. When Carr published the song in sheet music form in 1814, the name was changed from In Defense of Fort McHenry to The Star-Spangled Banner. The song was first publicly performed in a Baltimore theater on October 19, 1814, and would become especially popular in Maryland for obvious reasons. Key would return to his prestigious law practice in Washington. 35 years old when he wrote The Star-Spangled Banner, he had already argued cases in front of the Supreme Court. He would represent many clients in some of the era's most prominent legal cases. Key had close political ties to Andrew Jackson and would eventually be named the U.S. Attorney for Washington, D.C., a post he held until 1841. He died on January 11, 1843, aged 63. Although the Star-Spangled Banner remained popular during Key's lifetime, it did not achieve official status for many years. Other songs, including Hail Columbia, America the Beautiful, and My Country Tis of Thee, would be sung at public events and ceremonies, all achieving unofficial status. It would not be until a congressional resolution signed by President Herbert Hoover in 1931 that the Star-Spangled Banner would officially be named the National Anthem. Francis Scott Key's obituary in the Baltimore American captured both the sentiment of the author and the emotional connection the American people have come to embrace in the Star-Spangled Banner. So long as patriotism dwells among us, so long will this song be the theme of our nation. Thank you for listening to this podcast about Francis Scott Key. 
Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Through the Perilous Fight by Steve Vogel, The Star-Spangled Banner, The Making of an American Icon by Lon Taylor, and The Dawn's Early Light by Walter Lord. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.